Hi there, I'm Katherine Clark. And I'm Jennifer Stewart, and welcome to The Honest Talk. We're having real, unscripted conversations with women leaders across Canada. We want to dig past the surface and find out what makes them tick, what's driven their passion, and uncover stories about their journey that may surprise and inspire. We're tossing aside the usual talking points, so let's get right to it. Mary Walsh is a Newfoundland actor, writer, comedian, activist, and mother. And she's a Canadian treasure who's created and starred in some of this country's most iconic TV shows, including Codco and This Hour is 22 Minutes. Mary has received the Order of Canada, the Governor General's Lifetime Achievement Award, and a nice handful of honorary degrees. She's written a novel, she's worked in numerous films and other TV productions, and she's a noted advocate for mental health and addiction awareness. We are really honored to have Mary Walsh on The Honest Talk today. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? How is the pandemic treating you, Mary? Well, you know, I hate to say this because it is so difficult for so many people, but I have been having a good pandemic. It's given me an opportunity, like I've been by myself a lot of the time, and it's being given me an opportunity to reflect, which is something I've never been able to do. Nothing, I'm not very good at it. And, uh, you know, I'm usually running desperately from one airport to another, getting on a plane, getting in a car, you know, uh, feeling... Um, you know, um, overwhelmed by projects I've got to do, things I've got to get done, things that need to be done around the house, all those things that really the March and April just put an end to everything. And, uh, and so there was no, now I've managed to get myself worked up into quite a tizzy again by now, because I've got a number of projects on the go, um, mostly just writing and, uh, you know, I've got a, um, uh, Oh, what's it called? An animation thing that I'm trying to get done. And that's been really exciting. But uh, yeah, mostly good because I have a level of anxiety uh, that had that really I even darned some socks there in April. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is going to be my life from now on. Darning <laughs> socks and getting those, you know, um, <laughs> baking bread. I didn't actually do the sourdough bread because um, I had a go at sourdough quite a while ago. And Never really got, really the bread wasn't worth all the thing, but I did make a couple of loaves of bread. But then inevitably things lifted a little, our total lockdown ended and I got back to work. And so I got working on a number of different projects and things. And so now I've got myself worked up again, but, um, but yeah, mostly it's been, I would have to say that it allowed me to come to terms with myself in some kind of way and to, you know, I, I think I've wanted to for a long time to stop running, uh, you know, and stop wanting and stop grasping. And um, it just, you know, just gave me a big knock up the side of the head and, uh, you know, knocked me down. And then I had to have a look at things. So what, that, that's really interesting. And I love that you were leaning into the pandemic life with bread making and knitting. That's, that's fabulous. But what, what did you reflect on? <sighs> well, you know, those things that, you know, if you're a woman, uh, when I was a young woman at any rate, if you didn't have a partner, then you were totally dismissible. You weren't any, anyone. And the notion of ending up 
as a spinster was such a horrendous notion. And the notion that you wouldn't have some fella in your life and that you wouldn't settle into. Now, I was born in 1952, so things were changing. And I was part, actually, I was part of a of a, a consciousness raising group in the in the 70s while I was living with somebody who was, you know, uh, hitting me uh, was weird. Like I find one of the things that I did reflect on, actually, <laughs> but that's possibly not the most profound, was how paradoxical our lives are, how we have two completely opposite things going on at the same time, you know. And um, and so that notion of finally not trying to be someone else, finally coming around to being the subject of your own life. And this is late, I know, but it's been happening for a long time. And and to stop desperately uh, trying to be the object of somebody else's desire. You know what I mean? Even mm-hmm. if it's not a man, uh, even if it's uh, an audience or, a you know, to come. I think what it's given me is that last little push to come into myself finally, which I think happens to us all as we age. And maybe it just would have taken a little longer without the pandemic. When you drill past, you know, the facade, for lack of a better word, or kind of the stage persona, and you talk about finding your true self, not to get too philosophical, but but what does that person look like to you? Well, you know, here's the thing. She's a lot happier <laughs> That's what I've noticed. And I did read some, there is some quite good scientific research that said, as people, human beings, both men and women, as we get older, we get happier. And I've noticed that in myself. And of course, it's hard to know whether you're happy or punched or bored or whatever you're doing if you're constantly in a taxi to the airport running from one plane to the next. I mean, and always on that um uh, that grids thing. Uh, so I've noticed that I've had a, you know, sometimes I'll be reading something and I'll be, I'll find myself smiling like an idiot or like watching things on TV. Like, you know, like I'm usually very, I, or I've spent my life, you know, and I think it's getting less, thank God, being very judgmental of everything. Oh, that's not good enough. Or they shouldn't look like that. Or, you know what I mean? Whereas now I watch the most asinine stuff on TV. And I'll notice that I'm smiling. It's like, and I, there's nobody else around, luckily. And so I'm not caught doing it, smiling like an idiot at the, at the goggle box. Uh, but yeah, I find myself smiling a lot more. Of course, I still have the same, you know, I'm impatient. I want things to be done immediately. There are things that, uh, you know, in my life that I would like to change that I sort of seem to have no control over changing, though I've, you know, worn myself down to a thread trying to do it. Uh, I think I've come around to seeing what I may be able to change and what I may not be able to change. But to some extent, uh, you know, someone said to me, and I'm trying to take this in, that we won't be able to see who we are until we know who we are and accept that person. And then you can change from there, but it has to be awareness and acceptance and then action. Right. And so, yeah. So the, so the slowdown, the shutdown, the lockdown has given me at any rate, a lot more time to get closer to being maybe the person I am. 
Uh, Mary, I was a political kid and I lived in total terror that you were going to show up at whatever event I happened to be at and uh, that it would all just pretty much go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and I was I was wondering, though, because I look back on how I felt about it, which was terror. And then I thought, I wonder if you felt a certain element of terror, too, because it takes nerves of steel to go up oh to. Oh my God. I was terrified the whole time. Like people would say to me, you must have had such fun. And I would just look at them blankly because, you know, you only had the one shot most of the time because we were ambushing people. And, uh, and so if you didn't get it and you could just completely once with Ralph Klein, I just completely forgot myself. Totally. I didn't know where I was, who I was, or even what I was at that at that time, luckily, I happened to be wearing a set of six guns at the time uh, <laughs> would not, you know, with those caps in them, you know, those red rolls of caps. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone had said to me quite, you know, with that, because we were in the legislature in Alberta, they said, you know, don't shoot off the guns. I went, no. But then when I was completely lost, I immediately reached for the guns and shot them off, which caused quite a scandal. And it always made me think, don't have a gun or any weapon near to hand, because if things get bad, you'll use it. Or at least people like me will, you know what I mean? Anything for a distraction. (laughs) But uh, no, I was terrified most of the time, I have to say, but yes, it was terrifying. Mary, tell us a bit about your growing up years. I know you mentioned publicly that everyone in your family was funny. When did you realize that you also had a gift for being really funny? Well, you know, I always say, and it's quite true that most Newfoundlanders are funny. And if you're not funny and you live in Newfoundland, you might as well just go hang yourself because your mother (laughs) might not feed you anyway. So, uh, you know, there was just everybody has a turn of phrase, a way of looking at things that is skewed, you know, slightly off. Right. And uh, and so, you know, people are wry and dry, none of which I am, I wouldn't say. And I would say I was the most unfunny person in my family. I would say something which I thought was dead funny. And and the room would go really quiet and everyone would look at me. And when you think that people are funny, you think, oh, you know, how jolly. But we weren't funny like that. We were mean funny. We were making, you know, my mother would make fun of people who were two in the same way she would make fun of somebody who was, you know, 42, you know, like there was no, she didn't, she lived in a, in the 18th century where children were, you know, grownups and children, there was no difference. And so, People were constantly mocking each other. And, you know, you being the butt of uh, someone's um, joke. I mean, it wasn't always like that. And I didn't even grow up with them, really. I grew up with my aunt, my maiden aunt and my uncle and my other maiden aunt next door to my family. I grew up at number seven, Carter's Hill, and they were at number nine until they moved away when I was 11. And again, neglected to take me with them. Why did you live with a different part of your family? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And, uh, you know, that's, you know, something that tortured me for a long, long time. You know, the story was that I got very late when I was brave enough to ask anyone. Of course, I was never brave enough to ask my mother was that I had pneumonia when I was eight months old. And so number seven, the house at number seven was damp and the house at number nine was dry. And so that Aunt May and Aunt Fina and Uncle Jack took me when I came out of hospital. So I would be somewhere warm and dry. And then they, I don't know, forgot to give me back. The people <laughs> next door never came over to get me. Anyway, it went on like that. And so, you know, it's funny. And it always seemed to be such a, dark part of my um, 
you know, psyche, I guess, or that I felt so, but, you know, of late again with my new, you know, getting older, um, you know, I see that in many ways, in that paradoxical way, it was also a great blessing. That's really interesting. We, we spoke with Lisa Raitt on the podcast, who I think at age 11 found out that her sister was actually her mother. And uh, that was quite a moment in her life, obviously. So, you know, she talked about feeling very close with her grandmother from a very like maternal perspective. And honestly, with some perspective, um, really appreciating her, her upbringing and the situation she, she found herself in. Did you, did you develop a strong relationship with your maternal mother as, as you got older, or was that always, you know, a bit? No, 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 no. My mother, we used to, her nickname was the Sarge. That was her nickname in the house. So she wasn't like one of those, and I'm sure she must have been warm in some kind of way, but no, no, I would never dare have any relationship uh, with mom. Uh, that was, you know, I did spend some time with her and stuff like that and found her dead funny. She was one of the funniest people around, I think, but, um, but I never, no, I never spent, you know. Mm-hmm. You've, um, you've said recently that the, the secret of your, of your life that you've kind of just discovered was to hang on long enough to get used to being alive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, What does that mean? (laughs) When I was growing up, you know, say I was about 15 or 16, people would say, well, enjoy yourself now, Mary girl, because this is the best time of your whole life. And I used to think, fuck, if this (laughs) is the best time of my life, I am just going to go leap off signal Hill because you know what I mean? (laughs) And it was not true. That wasn't the best time. And I think maybe for some people it is, but for some of us, you know, I always pretended to know what I didn't know. And I knew nothing, of course, because how would I know anything? I was only around for 15 years. And so that that state of always pretending to know what you don't know and always being caught out, not knowing and always, you know, having to pretend to be something that you weren't. And the whole thing of being a young woman trying to, you know, trying to be a worthy object of somebody else's desire or trying to twist yourself pretzel-like into an object of somebody else's desire. I mean, I am so happy that that's behind me. So, and and so you just, I think that that is actually what happens. I think that's very clever of me to have said that actually, because I think after a while, you just get used to it. You just get used to being alive and you know who you are and you know what the world is. And of course, the world is always bringing you new disasters or new things you have to deal with. But you, you, I guess this might sound, I hate to say this for fears the fates might be listening, but, but you learn better anyway, even if you don't learn how to deal with things, but you learn better how to deal with what the world and the people of the world throw at you, right? It's, mm-hmm. I do things hard all the time, everything, everything, everything. I took everything personally and hard, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's- I don't kind of- sound very funny, do I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she must have been a barrel of laughs to hang around with. And I'm sure it can be exhausting just trying to, you know, maintain that charisma, which you you really, really have. Um, you know, you've been a huge advocate for mental health and substance abuse. And, you know, you've spoken about it very, um, you've spoken about it nationally. When did you and your career start having substance abuse issues? And when did you kind of, you know, seek help or say enough is enough? Well, I guess I had them for a very long time because, um, you know, the first time I ever got drunk, I I went into a blackout. So I was like, you know, people who suffer from uh, addiction and alcoholism often say, oh, I was drinking socially for 20 years. And then suddenly I had a blackout and I was very frightened. Well, that happened to me right away. And so I drank alcoholically even when I was young. 
because I was an alcoholic, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, the theater and stuff is uh, uh, is an easier place, I think, to get away with that sort of thing. It's more uh, I'm not sure if you're a nuclear physicist. I don't know. Maybe if you're a nuclear physicist, it's easy too. I don't have any experience there. They never call me about nuclear physical, <laughs> physical but, um, but no, I think I went ahead and I was a working alcoholic for a long, long time. And not until I, my son was in my life, did I realize that, and I didn't change it because of my career, though I would have had to have changed it at some point, but I changed it because of my son. Um, I, 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 I realized that this could not mm-hmm. go on. I didn't feel happy about it because, you know, as a, as an addict, alcoholic, as you know, they're both the same, really. You think that what's killing you is your best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't know how you're ever going to live without it. Right. How will I get by? How will I, you know? And so it is a terrible leap off the edge of the world. But I did it because my son, I knew that I was going to have to do something. There was no, you know, I may have had a spiritual awakening. I have no idea. But I knew there was no other option open to me at that point. You know, I'm always doing that little prayer. Even these days, not as much, I must say. But when when I was drinking, I was always praying, even though I was completely atheistic. I was always praying, oh, dear, please, dear God, let me get away with this. Let me just get away with this. And I promise I will never, you know what I mean? And uh, and I, I love that now. I very rarely have that, have to say that prayer. <laughs> How did you get help, Mary? I'll tell you one thing. I went on tour with Codco because we had a new book that Helen Peters had, had gathered together the plays of Codco and put them out. And we were going on a tour. We went to Toronto and Halifax and things like that. And I had stopped maybe that the week before or maybe two weeks before. And I could not stop crying. I just couldn't stop crying. And Kathy Jones, who was a big health, alternative health person, said to me, go see this guy. You know, he's a physical therapist. You know, he'll give you a massage and move things around and stuff like that. And I went, it's not my body is my, you know, my, mind. she said, well, sometimes, you know, um, when you get help in your body, sometimes it'll help your mind. Anyway. So I went to him, I was crying all the time talking about my mother, which was endlessly talked about my mother in the old days. And, um, he suggested, uh, that maybe I should call a 12 step program. And I thought, oh yeah, that's all I fucking need. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I thought that's the end. That's the very end right there. But anyway, I managed to um, stay sober and then continued to have continued one day at a time uh, to stay sober. Now, I think it was uh, uh, I had got 28 years there the end of October. And so I know and and I'm really um, impressed, uh, you know, but as I look back, you know, you think you do all these things. And I was talking to somebody today and when I was an active alcoholic. I thought I was all alone and had no. And when I look back on my life and how many people carried me through things and the kindness that people showed me and the absolute dedication that people had, you know, to helping me along the way. I just flabbergasted that I could have been my my flabber is gasted, as Ray Guy used to say. Mary, you've been doing a lot of research into aging. Yeah. Just as as we close out this interview, 
why have you been doing that and and how has it changed how you live your life? Well, I think it's helped me feel happier too. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's no guarantee uh, that we will have a happier old age, but it is the norm, they say, in the same way that we have a very disturbed adolescence. Not everybody has a very disturbed adolescence, but that is the norm. The norm is that no matter what our social standing is or our physical health uh, is or, uh, or, or our economic health, uh, that we will have a happier old age, not to say that we will have a, oh, my God, the balloons are going up in the air, the fireworks are going off, but that we will be, if we were very unhappy, we'll be slightly less unhappy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, and so I love it. I love that because uh, I read somewhere years and years ago that life was full of a thousand tendernesses. And it really touched me then, even though I didn't really believe that. But now... I really do believe that. I believe, you know, I was thinking of all the people I've lost over the years. And I think that in a way, it's just, isn't it, the way that life is set up. So we keep losing more and more until we finally have the big loss and we're kind of ready for it in a way. We are, we've practiced, we've rehearsed it so that we, you know, we we actually are ready to, you know, go down that that road at the end. Anyway, that's the way I'm thinking about things now. That's a, that's a good way to think about things. And yeah, to, yeah. It's better than the other way, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You always have two choices, right? How you look at things. <laughs> Mary, both Catherine and I really appreciated your humor and your candor. Thank you so much for joining us on The Honest Talk today. Thank you so much, you guys. That's a wrap. And to our listeners across Canada and around the world, thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to The Honest Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also listen on our website, thehonesttalk.ca. We've got inspiring, dynamic guests lined up, and we look forward to having you back for The Honest Talk. Honest Talk.